0: Silent prayer so we can make sure that we are spiritually prepared to study the Word today. Whenever we stop walking by the Spirit, we are under the control of the sin nature, so we need to confess our sin, and then God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So let's go to the throne of grace. Father, we're thankful for another day, another week where we can glorify you, another opportunity to study your word that we can advance spiritually. Father, we're so thankful for the opportunities that you give us each day to apply your word and grow spiritually, the opportunities you give us each day to uh, perhaps communicate the gospel to someone or to plant a seed or to water a seed that uh, perhaps you can use us in the process of bringing people to a saving understanding of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Father, we pray that you would expand our opportunities and that we would have the uh, sensitivities and the courage to take advantage of those opportunities and to spend time with people who are in a desperate need of learning about the grace that has been bestowed upon us through the death of Christ on the cross. Father, we pray for us this evening as we continue our study, understanding the important concepts related to who you are and how you are, how you eternally exist as a triune God. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Okay, we are studying in 1 Peter. 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 starts off with the phrase, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, as I've thought about this, and I pointed this out last time as, uh, we, as I introduced this, there are certain phrases in Scripture that as we think about them and as we mold them over in our minds, they just seem to be pregnant with a lot more significance and meaning than may first uh, appear to us. And, as i 've thought about this i 've thought about, well, what is going on here now, contextually, this is going to connect to the main thought in the verse that, that he it is God, the Father who has caused us to be born again to a living hope, the concept of fathers connected to birth and, and regeneration contextually. but in the immediate phrase phraseology of that verse, what is it that we have connected? we have blessed be the god number 1 number 2 father of our lord jesus christ so if god the father is mentioned then the correlative to that is there has to be a son you can't be a if you're not a father if you don't have a child if you don't have a son if you don't have a daughter so the fact that god is referred to as the father implies a son or a descendant. Now, last time as we looked at this, we looked at the Trinity and specifically in terms of these references to God the Father. Now, I haven't even gotten into the New Testament yet because a lot of times people don't think of the Old Testament. That's not your first go-to area of the Bible when you think about the Trinity. A lot of folks think that the Trinity is just a New Testament uh, doctrine. But what we discover is that it's, it's throughout the Old Testament, not, it may not permeate the Old Testament to the level and specificity that we have in the, in the New Testament, but it is definitely there and we need to understand that. You never know when you're going to get an opportunity to perhaps uh, witness to someone who is Jewish or someone who is a Muslim or someone who comes out of a background where they're just not really clear on the concept of the Trinity. And while we're just talking about the general doctrine of the Trinity, there are a lot of Christians who just have what I call a passing familiarity with uh, some of the basic doctrines of Scripture, and the Trinity is one of them. Now, what I mean by passing familiarity is sort of like when you're at the grocery store and you walk by someone, and for the next ten minutes your brain's whirring because you say, that person's really familiar to me. I've seen them somewhere before, and somewhere down about five aisles later you go, oh yeah, I remember that person from uh, someplace in the past, but, but that's about all you can remember. And maybe as a little time goes by, you're brain recovers a few things off the tired old hard drive, and uh, and it comes to mind. Well, there are a lot of Christians who are like that. They either grow up in, in denominations or churches where very little is taught, or they grow up in homes where uh, little is taught, little is emphasized, and so they don't, they know, I believe God is a trinity. I heard that in Sunday school. But why is that important? What's the significance of that? And what I find, sadly, is that there are a lot of folks today, especially young people, 20-somethings, 30-somethings, but there's a lot of folks who are older as well, who no longer are involved in any kind of church life. They're not involved in any kind of Bible study. They're believers. They trusted the Lord at some point, maybe when they were a kid, maybe when they were older. And in some cases, they've actually converted to something else, some non-Christian religion. Maybe they converted to Islam. Maybe they converted to Judaism. Maybe they converted to Buddhism or Hinduism or they've become uh, agnostic. And what I usually find in these cases is that even though they may understand what the basics of Christianity might be, they, were, they never really grasped or never really was never explained to them why these things were important. So so what if I believe God is just a single God or a Trinitarian God? What difference does it make? So what if I don't believe that, that Jesus is fully God? What, what difference does that make? Why are these things so vital and so significant, and a lot of that has to do with the way uh, too often that the Bible is taught as sort of snapshots and uh, of disconnected events, disconnected stories, disconnected doctrines, and we don 't see how they tie together and ultimately why they 're important and why they ought to shape our, our thinking. This is one of the things I think is a great benefit in listening through. Uh, charlie Clough's framework series, and going through all what is a two hundred and twenty six lessons, something like that, because he he shows in those lessons how everything interconnects from Genesis one to revelation uh, twenty one and how all of that uh, that ties together all of that fits so that we can understand understand the scripture now, when we looked at last week, we came to this phrase. And I started talking about the Old Testament and how within the Old Testament we see a plurality of the Godhead. In other words, what we see is multiple persons talked about that are given the attributes of deity. So that as we look at the Old Testament, we're not looking at a singular monotheism or a Unitarian monotheism. Where we just have one person and one essence. And I pointed out that this is recognized even in the, uh, 19, 1986 or 1987 edition of the Tanakh, the Jewish Publication Society updated translation of the, of the Old Testament. Where you have in the, in the Shema in, in uh, Deuteronomy 6-4, uh, we believe in, uh, the Lord our God is the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, echad in the Hebrew, the Lord is one. And historically, that's been emphasized as a singularity, that the Lord is one. But you have two uh, two ways in which that word echad is used in Scripture, and either one would fit the context. And the translators of the Tanakh recognize that, that in their view, Translating it as alone was probably better within the context, and I agree with him that the context of Deuteronomy is really arguing against uh, and warning the Israelites against the uh, polytheism of the Canaanites. And so the emphasis in Deuteronomy six four is the Lord alone is our God. We don't have multiple gods. We don't believe in polytheism. The other possibility is the use of Echad, as we find in Genesis chapter 2, that the two became one flesh. So you have a multiple persons in a marriage, but they are a unity. So we can could even translate the Lord is a unity. The Lord is is one in the sense of unity, not a solitary monotheism. So we looked at that last time, and then I went through passages talk, that talked about God as uh, as our Father. And primarily that is in relation to uh, a passage that we'll look at in a minute in Exodus chapter 4 where God called Israel as his firstborn. Now that's another uh, very pregnant concept there. There are a lot of implications to that. And I'm not going to get off onto that as we look at this tonight. But uh, we looked at these various passages that indicated that God's uh, references to God as our father. So there's an Old Testament background for understanding what Peter is saying here when he says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we saw that the word blessed here is not makarios, which is a, another word for blessed, but it's the word "eulogetos," which indicates uh, that you're saying, you're saying something good or you're praising a person. And so the best translation is to praise the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so the focus there is on God as the, one person as the Father, and then the second person is the Lord Jesus Christ. So we began by looking at this idea of God, uh, God as Father and the doctrine of the Trinity, but we're going beyond the fatherhood of God to talk, uh, tonight a little bit about the sonship of the Messiah as an Old Testament doctrine. I ended up close to this last time and and mentioned a few of these passages we'll look at tonight, but I want to go back and look at them again because, again, we hear these, but sometimes we just move things through things a little quickly, and it takes a little more time to just let it sit and soak in our thinking and to come to understand these things. Also, along with this, I'm putting up the statement in our doctrinal statement. And a lot of times we have, we have these things that are in church doctrinal statements. And we know, as I said earlier, we know that's what we believe, but we don't necessarily understand why. And a triune conception of God is is radically different than a Unitarian conception of God. So we start off saying we believe in one God who is sovereign, righteous, just, eternal, love, omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent, immutable, and truth in his essence. God is one in essence, and we're summarizing his attributes through those ten, uh, ten attributes. And then the second statement, he exists in three persons. So he's one in essence, three in person. And the three persons are identified in Scripture as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. These three persons are co-equal, co-eternal, and co-infinite. One is not ontologically—don't you love that word? I always like that word. One is not ontologically superior to the other. Ontological is a, is a synonym for the word metaphysical. Now I'll go chew on that for a while. It means that it, it, it's talking about their very essence. The, the essence of something. So the ontology of something has to do with its core being. Those of you who went through evolu- evolutionary indoctrination when you were in about the tenth grade, under the old BSCS textbook that was used in in uh, public schools in Texas, were introduced to the concept called ontology recapitulates phylogeny. Y'all remember that, don't you? You probably had to spit it out on an exam and then you forgot about it. Okay, but that's the first time you ran in, into that word. You probably haven't heard it too much since, other than for me. So it's the idea of the essence of something. So they're, in essence, in the core of their being, in what makes God God, they are identical. One is, does not, one does not have more knowledge or less knowledge than another. One is not more present or less present than the other. Uh, one is uh, not more powerful or less powerful than the other. They are all equal and equally eternal. There wasn't a time when one began. That was the old, in the early church, it was called the Arian heresy. In the more modern church, we call it Jehovah's Witnesses. And it's the idea that that there was a time when Christ was not. That sometime in eternity past, God the Father generated the Son. But if you go back beyond that, there's a time when Christ was not. That was a huge heresy in the early 300s in the church, and it's popped up again and again throughout church history. So they're all co-eternal, and they are co-infinite in all of their uh, their attributes. So that's our basic doctrinal statement, so we're developing this. Now, I also talked last time about this concept of the angel of the Lord, and we looked at Zechariah 1.12 and the conversation between uh, the angel of the Lord in verse 12, who is having a, a conversation with Yahweh, the uppercase L-O-R-D refers to the four letters that, disc- that give the name of God in, the, in Hebrew, Yahweh, uh, which means ba- it's basically a form of the Hebrew verb Hayah, which means to be or to exist. So when Moses asked God, well, whom should I say sent me? God's reply was, I am that I am. Tell them, I am has sent you. I am, meaning the eternally existent one. He is being itself and the source of all being. So here we have the angel of the Lord talking to the Lord of hosts. And so there obviously there are two distinct personages talked about in Zechariah 1.12. We also looked at Judges 6.11, that the angel of the Lord was worshipped by by Gideon, and as we see in this passage, when you compare Judges 6.11, talking about the angel of the Lord, with Judges 6.14, that the angel is now called Yahweh. In Judges 6.14. So the Zechariah passage shows that the angel is distinct from God. Judges 6 shows that they're viewed also as being identical. And you see that in the rest of Judges 6. So let's take a look at our starting point here in Exodus 4.22 and 23. God is talking to Moses. Moses is getting his operation order to go to the Pharaoh to demand that Pharaoh free his people. And the Lord says, uh, if Pharaoh asks, why are you doing this? Then you say, thus says Yahweh, Israel is my son, my firstborn. Now this is a, 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 a very important passage. There are a lot of things related to being firstborn. One of the things that's related to being firstborn is what? You get the double blessing. You are the prime heir of, under the law of primogeniture in the Old Testament. So the firstborn is the designated heir the father. The main line will go through the firstborn. So inheritance rights are part of, uh, of what it means to be the firstborn. He's the preeminent one. And this idea is going to be applied to Jesus as the firstborn of creation. In Colossians one uh, seventeen, he's the firstborn of creation. Not because he's first in terms of there were others that were born after him, or that he was born, but it's emphasizing his preeminence that he is the one who has the inheritance and the possession. And we're going to connect the dots on that uh, tonight to the role of the Messiah in Psalm two seven and two nine, that he is the one who receives the inheritance from God in the declaration of, of the, the sonship of the second person of the Trinity. So what we see here, and I'll say this a number of times, is that we see an analogy here, or a replacement as it were, of Israel for the first Adam. The first Adam is created by God, and his role is to rule over the birds of the air, the fish of the sea, the uh, beasts of the field, etc. He's created in the image and likeness of God, but he fails, doesn't he? Adam failed. He blew it. He disobeyed God, and he's no longer able, because of his fallen nature, to fulfill the original creation mandate to rule over creation as God's vicegerent. Now, there's another good vocabulary word for you. A lot of people get a little... uh uh, mixed up when they read it and their eyes look at it and they don't know what a vice vicegerent is so they think it means a vice regent but it's not a vice regent it's a vice gerent there's a distinction in the terms a vice regent is sort of like a vice president you have the president who's in charge of things and he has an ass- uh, assistant or someone who'll take his place when he can't do it and that's a vice president but a vicegerent is, is a different concept. A vicegerent is someone who is sent as a representative of a ruler. It's like an ambassador. It's a little bit different, but it's a representative. So, so Adam is the vicegerent of God. He represents God to rule over God's, God's creation. When he blows it, he blows it. Satan takes control of planet Earth. And Satan is the prince and the power of the world, and the uh, god of this age, and he is the one who uh, controls the planet. But he has had his death sentence announced at the cross, where he was defeated. But he still has has power. So, how is this initial function of man going to be fulfilled? If man was to rule over the creation and Adam fell from that, how is that going to be fulfilled? It's going to be fulfilled by the second Adam. The second Adam, who is God himself, God the Son, who enters into human history, takes on true humanity as a man, is going to come back to rule over the creation. And so the fulfillment of that initial destiny for mankind is going to be completed by the Lord Jesus Christ. In the same way, Israel as a nation was called out by God to be a priest nation. They are going to fail as a priest nation. That was part of their responsibility as the firstborn. They were to, to be a priestly nation to, and, and lead and direct all of the nations to a relationship with God. They failed in that. So ultimately the first, this firstborn concept related to Israel is going to be fulfilled by the Lord Jesus Christ who becomes, who is the Son of God. And as the Son of Man, He fulfills that priestly role. He's the prophet, priestly king. So these things get get pulled together. So I'm starting at this concept. Israel's my son, but ultimately this is going to be fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, when we uh, look at what the Old Testament teaches, we recognize that the Old Testament gives divine names, and titles, and divine and ascribes divine attributes to the Son. That means that ultimately Israel can't be the son. See, what I'm dealing with here is that there are passages like we have here in Psalm 2-7 where we read, I will declare the decree. The Lord has said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Who's the son? We look at Proverbs 30 verse 4. Who has ascended into heaven or descended? Who has uh, gathered the wind in his fists? Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who has established all the ends of the earth? These are all rhetorical questions. They don't expect an answer, but they want to get uh, the, the reader to think through, who is this? this? This is talking about the creator God and says, what is his name? We'll talk about this verse a little later. And what is his son's name? So the question is, who's the son? Well, in the history of interpretation, Jewish interpreters say the son is Israel. The Son is Israel, but the problem that we have is that the Old Testament gives divine names, divine titles, ascribes divine attributes to the Son. Therefore, the Son can't be Israel. The Son has to be a divine individual, a divine person. If divine works are ascribed to the Son, then Israel can't be the Son, if divine worship is given to the Son, then that certainly can't be Israel because we don't worship Israel. So the Son has to be an individual, a person, a divine person. Furthermore, as we looked at God the Father last time, when we study what is said about God the Father, we recognize that uh, our understanding that He is fully divine is based upon the same thing. It's based on the titles. The attributes and the ascription of divine, uh, 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 excuse me, of his names, his titles, his his works, and worship for the Father indicate that he is fully divine. What, we're, what I'm saying here is that if the ascription of attributes, names, titles, works, and worship to the Father is evidence that he's divine then the, uh, then assigning divine names, titles, works, worship, and attributes to the Son should be equally valid as evidence that the Son is fully divine. And that's what we're going to see. We've demonstrated that God the Father is fully divine by His titles, His names, His works, and worship. And we're going to use the same categories to show that the Son is the God. Now, one of the reasons this is important is because there are those who are strict monotheists, such as Jews, Muslims, and Unitarians, who will accept the, this evidence of the works and worship, the names and titles of the uh, related to the Father as evidence that the Father is divine, but they don't accept that line of evidence as valid for supporting the deity of the Son. Which shows that they have a, must have a superior agenda or a hidden agenda because what, what they're saying is that, uh, the Father's divine but the Son's not. One line of evidence works for the Father. We reject it for the Son. That's inconsistent and it's illogical. And it's only that way because they have a presupposition that the Son can't be the Father. that For them, the Trinity is irrational. The Trinity is not rational, I would say it's super rational, it's beyond our finite minds to totally comprehend it, and so we can't control it, so there are those who want to make human reason the final arbiter of truth, and so they say, because I can't understand the doctrine of the Trinity, then it must not be true. So we're going to go forward tonight and look at what the Old Testament teaches about the Son. To do that, I want to go back just a little bit to what I talked about last week in terms of this other personage mentioned in the Old Testament that is the Angel of the Lord. The Angel of the Lord is the pre-incarnate Christ. The pre-incarnate Christ. And if we are accurate, and this is one of the problems you get into with uh, English translations, is that the term should be translated the messenger of Yahweh, not the angel of Yahweh, not the angel of the Lord. That's a bad translation because angel communicates something different. So what we have in the Old Testament is the word uh, malach, which means a messenger, and it is often translated angel. Now the Greek word that was used in the New Testament is the word angelos. And that is simply a Greek term for messenger. A messenger is an angelos. We'll look at this in a minute. But when the, when Jerome translates the Bible, the New Testament, and the Old Testament into Latin, he used, he just transliterated the word, the the Greek word angelos over into Latin, and it was the word angelos and so it be, it was then taken to be a technical term for a special kind of spirit being that's where confusion enters in because when we hear the word angel we think of someone like gabriel or michael or uh, something of that nature rather than the concept of a messenger and the word malach, the word angela simply refers to a messenger and not necessarily to a spirit being. Let me give you one example here in uh, Matthew 11.10. In Matthew 11.10, this is uh, used in reference to, to John the Baptist. And quoting from the Old Testament in Isaiah, "...behold, I send my messenger before your face." Well, it's obviously in context that the messenger isn't an angel, it's a human being. Now, the context is referring to John the Baptist, and Jesus is quoting from, uh, from Isaiah here and applying this to, uh, to, to uh, John the Baptist. So messenger here is the word angelos. Now, if you'll notice, for those of you who pay attention to details... Notice how I've transliterated angelos here, A-G-G, because literally the word is spelled A-G-G-E-L-O-S. But in Greek, whenever you have a G or double gamma or a gamma and a, and a, uh, uh, kappa, a G and a K that go together, that is pronounced like an N-G. Okay? That's where you get angelos out of what looks like agalos, okay? So you have to understand these 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 basics. So uh, you know it should really be transliterated as as uh, angelos because that's how it would be uh, would be pronounced. So here it's clear that that angelos means messenger, and if we Look at these translations for angel of the Lord as the messenger of Yahweh. It gives us a totally different image. What most people hear when they hear angel of the Lord is they immediately picture whatever they think of as an angel. But we're not talking about an angel. So this is a problem. We're talking about uh, a messenger. So within the Godhead, you have God the Father who's the planner and God the Son who is the revealer. He's also called the Logos in Greek or Memra in Hebrew, which is the word, the expression, the communication of God. So it's the role of the second person of the Trinity, to communicate the essence of the Father and the message of the Father. So they have a division of labor and responsibility within the Godhead. Henry Ford did not uh, invent the idea of the uh, assembly line and the division of labor that was originated by the eternal essence of God the Father. He just sort of rediscovered it and applied it in a new way. So the first use of this term, turn with me in your Bible to Genesis chapter 16, And you can use your pen to underline some things in your Bible. I know that always surprises some people. Every now and then I run into people who say, you write in your Bible? Yes, of course you do. That's how you remember things. Uh, Genesis chapter 16, this is the episode where uh, you have uh, Hagar, who is uh, the concubine of Abraham, and Sarai, Abram's wife, has not been able to bear a child, so she is um, uh going to convince uh Abram to take Hagar and have sexual relations with her so that she can conceive and have this child that neither one of them can uh can give uh can can conceive at this particular point. And so uh Abram does what his wife suggests, and then afterwards Sarai uh, explodes in uh, je- jealousy and kicks Hagar out he wants her she wants her out of the house and doesn't want her uh, around so she leaves and then in verse 7 we read now the angel of the lord or the messenger of yahweh found her by a spring of water in the wilderness by the spring on the way to shur and he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. And then look at verse 9. I've, I've left most of this out. I just want to focus on these two verses. But the angel of the Lord then says, return to your mistress, submit to her under your hand. Then the angel of the Lord said to her, so he who's speaking all the way through here. Angel of the Lord, or excuse me, messenger of Yahweh, messenger of Yahweh, messenger of Yahweh. In Verse 10. And verse 11, and the messenger of Yahweh said to her. So we have uh, four references by verse 11 uh, from the messenger of Yahweh. In verse 11 we read, And the messenger of the Lord said to her, Behold, you're with child, and you shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because Yahweh has heard. Your affliction. Now we go from the messenger of Yahweh to a reference to Yahweh. Now I'm going to go back to this slide. And in verse 13, the reason this is significant is because uh, what we see is in verse 7, verse 9, verse 10, verse 11, that the person she's communicating with is the angel or the messenger of Yahweh. And then in verse 13, she identifies the messenger of Yahweh as Yahweh who spoke to her. So here you have another example like the Judges 6 passage with Gideon where it starts off talking about uh, the angel of Yahweh, and then the angel of Yahweh is is described just by the name Yahweh. Same thing happens in Judges 13. In Judges 13, you have the angel of Yahweh appear to uh, Manoah, the father of Samuel, and give him, him instructions about the fact that his barren wife is going to conceive and give birth to a son who's going to be a Nazarite uh, from birth. And so as a result of that, uh, Manoah is going to fall down and worship Yahweh. So you have the the messenger of Yahweh identified in those contexts as Yahweh, and sometimes also uh, you see the ascription of the word Elohim to the uh, messenger of Yahweh. All of that shows that the messenger of Yahweh is worshipped as Yahweh, and every other place you have an angel or a creature being worshiped as God, they always say, no, 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 you don't do that. You only, you only worship God. So the angel of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh is viewed as, as Yahweh. And so she calls the name of Yahweh who spoke to her. Who is it that spoke to her? It's the four times it's mentioned. This is the messenger of Yahweh and calls him you are the God who sees. You are the God who sees, and says, "Have I also here? Seen, have I also here seen Him who sees me?" And then in verse fourteen, we read, "Therefore the well was called Beer, which is a well." Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, it is between Kadesh and Vered, or Vered. So, it is. Also seen in verse 11 that the term uh, angel of Yahweh is identified with, or messenger of Yahweh is identified with Yahweh. Yahweh has heard your affliction. Now, the New King James doesn't quite translate verse 13. Let me back up here. Verse 13, the best. See the last line there? For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? New American Standard says, have I even remained alive here after seeing him? That is the more accurate translation. She is astounded that having seen God, that she's still alive. So that response of hers expresses again the fact that she has, uh, she has seen Yahweh. And she's astonished that, uh, the angel of, or the messenger of Yahweh has left her alive. So let's go on to the next met, uh, reference. Just turn over a few pages to Genesis chapter 21. Genesis chapter 21. And here we're going to see Hagar part 2. Hagar part 2. And after she has given birth to Ishmael, and when Sarai finally becomes pregnant with Isaac, uh, then what happens is that God now, it's now time, uh, uh, Sarai talks to uh, uh, Abraham, and now it's time for uh, Hagar to leave. And so we read in Genesis 21, uh, down in verse uh, 17, we'll just take it up in the middle of this, that they uh that they leave and um, and go off into the wilderness and God is going to promise to take care of her and that it is going to be uh it's going to be for the good for for them to separate so we get down to verse uh verse uh, what do I have there verse 17 and God heard the voice of the lad and that is uh, uh Ishmael then the angel of God Notice not the messenger of Yahweh, but the messenger of God. Same thing because what we're going to see here is a switch back and forth between Elohim and God. So the messenger of God, Elohim, called to Hagar out of heaven, said to her, "What ails you, Hagar?" Now, when it says out of heavens, it is out of Hashemayim, out of the heaven, and so it's not heaven. It's not coming out of heaven in terms of a location, the throne room of God, it's literally and I misstated a minute ago, it's out of heavens, out of the heavens, so out of the sky. So it appears that the messenger of God has appeared to her again in the you know, in the air above her, and begins to uh, talk to her to find out what her problem is. And in verse eighteen he says, Arise Lift up the lad and hold him with your hand, for I will make him a great nation. Then, 19, God opened her eyes. So we've gone from referring to the messenger of God to God. It's the same, uh, talking about the same person. as then Elohim opened her eyes. She saw a well of water. She went and filled the skin. So God was with the lad. He grew and dwelt in the wilderness. In verse 21, he dwelt in the wilderness of Paran. His mother took a wife for him from the land of Egypt. Okay, then we go over to Genesis twenty two eleven. Just turn to the next chapter, and we're going to see another appearance of the messenger of Yahweh in verse 11. But the messenger of Yahweh called to him from heaven. This is just as Abraham is about to slit Isaac's throat as a sacrifice to God. And just as he picks up the sacrificial knife, uh, the messenger of Yahweh calls to him where? From where? Not from heaven, which is the throne of God, but from the heavens, Hashemayim, that's the plural, from the heavens. So the angel of the Lord appears, the messenger of Yahweh appears to him and says, uh, Abraham, Abraham, basically stop it. And Abraham responds in verse 22, he says, and he said, do not lay your hand on the lad or do anything to him. For now I know that you fear God, since you have not withheld your son, your only son from me. Then Abraham lifted his eyes and looked, and there behind him was a ram caught in the thicket. So Abraham went, and took the lamb, offered it up for a burnt offering instead of his son. And then in verse 14, Abraham calls the name of the place Yahweh Uray, the Lord will provide. As it is said to this day, in the mount of Yahweh it shall be provided. So again, we have this, this reference of Yahweh, the messenger of Yahweh is identified as as Yahweh. Then in verse 15, we have a second, uh, part of the conversation. The messenger of Yahweh calls to Abraham a second time out, out of the heavens and says, by myself I have sworn, says Yahweh. Because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son. Blessing, I will bless you. Listen to what he's, he's saying. Blessing, I will bless you. Cursing, I will curse you. He summarizes the Abrahamic covenant. And he goes on to say, "In your seed, all the nations of the earth shall be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice." So, my voice is the voice of the messenger of, of Yahweh. So, again, we see this communication. Now, remember, places you can go to see similar events: Judges six, eleven, and twelve, and then uh, which is Gideon, and the same interplay where the messenger of Yahweh is called Yahweh and worshipped as Yahweh. We looked at that last time and Zechariah 11 and 12, where you have a conversation between the messenger of Yahweh and Yahweh Tzabaoth, the Lord of hosts. We studied that just Tuesday night in 1 Samuel chapter 1. So this is critical for understanding that you have a plurality of deity that exists. You have two, two at least two personages mentioned here that are both given the ascription of deity they are both called Yahweh, they're called Elohim, and they are worshipped as, and they worship the messenger of Yahweh as God. So this takes us back to the verse where I started, which is in Proverbs 30, verse 4. And in Proverbs thirty verse 4, we have this proverb of Agur, this proverb of Agur that brings out something extremely significant. All I covered on this last time was that this indicates that God, the creator, has a son. It's very clear from the Old Testament that God, the creator God, Yahweh, has a son. Of course, the question is, who's the son? And what we're going to see is that the son is a divine son, not a human son. He can't be uh, understood to be Israel or the nation Israel. Now, as we look at this at this particular proverb, as I pointed out, there are four rhetorical questions or five rhetorical questions at the beginning, which are designed to focus our attention on the divine, on God, who has gone up into heaven or descended. No one has. The only one who's been to heaven is God. So we don't know anything about heaven because God's the only one who's been there. Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Well, only the creator has control over the winds. Who has bound the waters in a garment? Who controls floods? Who is the one who created the waters and then separated the waters uh, from the dry land in, in Genesis chapter 1? Only God has done that. Who has established all the ends of the earth? Who has laid the foundations? Only God. So the answer to those questions is going to be God, Yahweh, the creator of the heavens and the earth. And then he asked two questions. What's his name? And what's his son's name? Now, in order to understand the significance of that question, we have to understand what the Bible means when it talks about the name of someone. We talk about believing in the name of Jesus. Now, the way we use these concepts of name, we basically use them as brands or labels. And that's not what the, how the Bible uses the term name, the concept of a name. A name represents the essence or the character of a person. That's why in Revelation, it talks about the fact that when we get to heaven, we're going to be given a new name, a name that reflects who we are. And, uh, identify something about us. And that's brought up an interesting little story I'll tell you because I had actually forgotten about this until he reminded me. But, but back in, uh, about three lifetimes ago, when I was a counselor at Camp Penile, I was a, um, uh, one of the things that they, that we would always do as, as advanced, as, as experienced staff or older staff or senior staff, however you want to call it. Is that when you had uh, the young men who, at the conclusion of their of their year at camp, we always ran this Indian motif, Indian chief motif, and they called the counselors chief, and so we would give them a name. We would give them an Indian name that would have something to do with attributes or characters that characteristics of um, uh, that 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 were expressed by that person. And so this was uh, something that was was uh, was emphasized and then we would try to find a verse in the Bible that emphasized this uh this this character this character trait or this this uh characteristic and now that I thought of that off the top of my head I'm looking around I'm going okay now I can't find the verse so um, I think it's in let me see in chapter um, Chapter 2. See, this is what happens when you do stuff off the top of your head and you think you know what you're talking about and all of a sudden you just can't find it. Um. (laughs) Well, I just absolutely... Lost that verse. Can't find it. Oh, here it is. Titus 1 9. So, a couple of weeks ago, I had lunch with an old friend of mine, David Whitelock, whose father founded Camp Penile, and he was one of the main staff, of course, at Penile when I was a young counselor. And he came to lunch, one of the first things he said, he said, Robbie, you know, when I was coming over here, I remembered that that the verse that I gave you years ago. He uh, says so you probably don't even remember. It was Titus one nine, because that is you know that's you. And I saw that forty five years ago, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound doctrine both to exhort and convict those who contradict. I thought, boy, that's really great. That's a good verse. I got to remember that. So that was a few years ago. Anyway, that's the idea of naming in the Bible is identify something about the essence or character of somebody. So what we see here in in this verse is in these questions is that he's bringing out a particular point. Uh, he's bringing that he wants the reader to think about, and so he asks these first five rhetorical questions. Who has done all of these things? And, of course, the answer is the God, the Creator. And then he says, what's his name? Well, the superficial answer is his name's Yahweh. His name's, his name's God. But that's not what he's asking. He said, what's his character? Do you understand, do you comprehend who he is? And the answer, of course, is no, no, not really. And then he says, what's his son's name? In other words, do you understand the character and the essence of his son? And the expected answer is, no, I really don't understand the nature of the son either. And the point that Agur is making in this proverb is that God is incomprehensible. What is his name? Do you know his name? If you know, tell me. The implication is you don't know. None of us know. We cannot comp- fully comprehend the incomprehensible. So this is what he is uh, emphasizing here in this particular verse. Now the parallelism here shows that the his name and his son's name are parallel, and if one is divine, then the other is divine. His son would be as divine as his as the first the creator god both are evident in the creation both are implied here and so the hebrew parallelism is designed to show that that the son of god is is a divine being and it can't be israel it's in the identity of the son or the complete under, understanding of the son is incomprehensible and so it is apparent that agar who is writing this proverbs understands that there are at least two personages in god understands that there is a plurality in in god that god is not a singular uh, monotheist so this takes us to another important passage And this is in Psalm two, so I want you to turn in your Bible to Psalm two. Psalm two is one—I would say—one of the probably ten most significant passages in all of the Bible. It is the most, uh, it's either the most or second most quoted Psalm in the New Testament. And so it is very significant. It is attributed to David in Acts 4.25, even though it is not stated to, to be a psalm of David at the beginning. The New Testament clearly affirms that it is. And um, and so this brings us to this very important passage. And here we read in Psalm 2.7, we have to identify who's speaking here. Who's the I? I will declare the decree. Well, who's the I? Who's the first person here? Well, the next line says, the Lord has said to me. So you have the Lord identified as a personage here and me as a second personage. So the Lord is Yahweh. And who's me? The me is identified as my son End the quote. So uh, the person who is speaking is the first person. This would be the Messiah, as we'll see, the son. The son says, I'm going to declare the father's decree. Yahweh has said to me, <clears throat> you are my son. Today I have begotten you. So this introduces important vocabulary but that, uh, uh, within this whole psalm. So let's just take a brief little review here that it starts off in the first three verses talking about this, this conspiracy against God by the leaders of mankind. Why do the nations rage or why do the gentiles rage why do the goyim rage and the people plot a vain thing so you see that the nations the people in on the world are pictured as as being in a state of high anger and violence and they are plotting against God this is uh, what verse 2 2a describes the kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together so there's this human conspiracy and then we're told it's against yahweh and against his anointed so you have two personages here yahweh and his anointed and the hebrew word for anointed is mashiach the greek word for anointed is is christos so Christos is just the Greek translation of Mashiach, the Messiah. So you have two personages. You have Yahweh on the one hand and the Messiah on the other hand. And what they are saying is, let us break their bonds. This is like Romans 1, 1.18, suppressing the truth and unrighteousness. We deny God. Let's throw off his authority. Let's, let's rebel against him. Let's destroy him. Let's break their bonds in pieces. And cast away their cords from us. So this sets the context. There's this open rebellion by the human race against the Creator God. In the course of this, we're going to skip down uh, through the next uh, three verses, which describes God poking fun at them. God is not politically correct. God pokes fun at the false religions of mankind. That's divine viewpoint. That's righteousness on the part of God. Modern man would say, you poke fun at other people's religions. You're terrible. You're terrible. You ought, we ought to kick you off the planet. But God pokes fun at other people's religions all the time. That's the godly thing to do. Okay? Alright, moving on. Psalm 2-7. The anointed one who is described in verse 6 as my king. God has announced that he has set his king on my holy hill of Zion. And now that king makes this declaration. I, and that's the Messiah talking, will declare the decree. The Lord, Yahweh, who's God the Father, has said to me, the king, the Messiah. And who's the king? This is David's descendant, David's greater son. Uh, You are my son. Today I have begotten you. So it's a declaration of the sonship of the Messiah, that the Messiah isn't Israel. The Messiah is the Son of God who is the king, the messianic king, the Davidic king. It's talking about an individual, not a corporate group or a corporate entity. Now, the next thing that we see here, which I think is really interesting, is in verse 8. The father says to the son, ask of me... And I will give you the nations for your inheritance. So that God the Son, the Mashiach, is supposed to ask of the Father, give me the nations as my possession. The core idea in the word inheritance is possession. Now, we've studied this before. It's been a long time. But in Daniel chapter 7, we have the Son of Man come in front of the Ancient of Days and ask the Ancient of Days for the, for the kingdom. And the Ancient of Days gives him the kingdom, and then he goes to the earth, and he destroys the, the rulers of the earth, the kings of the earth. That happens at the Battle of Armageddon, and then he establishes his kingdom. So that's what is going on. He says, ask of me, and I will give you the nations for your inheritance and the ends of the earth for your possession. Notice how possession and inheritance are parallel here. That's the idea of inheritance, not that somebody dies and leaves something for you in your will. Inheritance has to do with that which is your, which is rightfully yours and you own. And then the psalmist goes on to say, You shall break them, that's talking about the king that is set on the hill of Zion, that's talking about my son, you shall break them with a rod of iron. Uh, a rod of iron you shall dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel now this is really important to see the connection here who is it that breaks and and, and smashes here it's the sun the sun breaks and smashes it's the sun who rules it's the sun who's the king now we then look at job 34:24 job 34:24 says he Breaks in pieces mighty men without inquiry and sets others in their place. Who is it that has the right to break mighty men in pieces? It's God the Father, Yahweh, in context. It's talking about Yahweh identified uh, in the passage actually as El. In Job 34, uh, 23, mentions God as El and uses a verb that means to break or to shatter. He breaks in pieces mighty men without impress. So it is God who has the authority to break in pieces. It is El. But in Psalm two, that is that authority to break in pieces is given to who? It's given to the Son, the King, uh, the one who's declared to be his son. We look at a passage such as Psalm twenty four. Psalm twenty four one and two, the earth is Yahweh's and all of its fullness. Excuse me. The earth is Yahweh's in all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. This is asserting the sovereignty of God over his creatures on the earth. For he's founded it upon the seas and established it upon the waters. That's, that's the point. He is the one, he is the one that, that rules. Then as we look at this, we notice that in Jeremiah chapter 51, hold your place here, and this was a little too long to put in a slide, so I want you to just hold your place there, and we're going to flip over really quick to Jeremiah chapter 51, verses 19 to 23. In Jeremiah 51, 19 to 23, we read a phrase, a very interesting phrase, the portion of Jacob. That is another term for the, the Messiah, for God. The, the portion of Jacob is not like them. For he, that is the portion of Jacob, follow your pronouns there, he is the maker of all things. And Israel is the tribe of his inheritance. So there's your word inheritance there, tying the portion of Jacob as a term for the Messiah. And Israel is a tribe of his inheritance. And who's the, what's the name of the portion of Jacob? Yahweh of hosts. Okay, ties it together. The, the Messiah is the portion of Jacob. The Messiah is the maker of all things. The Messiah is called the Lord of hosts. Goes on to say in verse 20, you are my battle axe and weapons of war. For with you, talking about Israel, God is talking to Israel, I will break the nation in pieces for you. Uh, for with you I will destroy kingdoms. With you I will break in pieces the horse and his rider. With you I will break in pieces the chariot's rider. With you I will also break in pieces man and woman. With you I'll break in pieces old and young. And, it goes on to talk about the fact that, oh, excuse me, the you here is the Messiah. Excuse me, I, I'm getting in a hurry here trying to wrap this up. You are my battle Is talking about the Messiah. God the Father is going to use the Messiah as the one who breaks up the nations, destroys them, smashes them, breaks them in pieces. This is the same idea that we have uh, expressed back here in Psalm 2.9. You will break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces. And this is what God does in Job thirty-four twenty-four, but it is ascribed in Jeremiah chapter fifty-one to the Messiah. So what I started off saying was, if the titles of God, the names of God. The worship and the works of God are all ascribed to the Son of God, then the Son of God has to be fully divine, just like the Father is fully divine. And so what this does basically is set up for us the fact that the Old Testament clearly portrays a multiplicity of persons in the Godhead, and that they are of of, uh, they're equal in essence, they're fully, both fully divine and have the privileges of deity. Now when we come to the last verse of Psalm 212, we read, kiss the son, lest he be angry. And what does that mean, kiss the son? Now the Unitarians tried to retranslate this, but the concept of kissing the son is an idiom meaning to pay homage to the son. Just as if you went into a royal throne room, you would kiss the ring of the king. You would bow down and showing your allegiance and your obedience to the king, you would kiss his ring. So kissing the son here is an idiom for showing your homage, paying homage and uh, showing your obedience to the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. And then it concludes by saying, blessed are all those who put their trust in him. So the son is fully divine because you only trust in God in the scriptures. Scripture says that you're a fool. If you trust in man, you trust in God. So it is clear when you look at Psalm two, that you have God, the father and God, you have the Messiah who is declared to be the Son of God, and that he is the one who's going to break the nations, which is ascribed only to, as an activity, it's ascribed only to God in his justice. And then in verse 12, you give obedience and allegiance to the Son, just as you would the Father, which indicates again that the Son is fully God and fully divine, and therefore can't be Israel. So when you look at these passages in the Old Testament, it has to be a reference to another personage uh, in the Godhead, treated as God. Now next time... I want to come back, look at a couple of other verses in the Old Testament before we push on to start talking about God, the Holy Spirit. So we've looked at the Father in the Old Testament. Now we've looked at the Son in the Old Testament. A couple more passages to look at. And then we're going to look at the Holy Spirit. And as I pointed out last time, there are more things said about the Spirit of God in the Old Testament than are said about the Father and the Son combined. So you have a fully orbed doctrine of the Trinity in the Old Testament. It's just not as specific as what you get in the New Testament. Now, why is this important? It's important for a number of reasons. One is because it sets the stage for being able to understand the main divine characters in the New Testament, that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not introducing a new concept of plurality in the Godhead. This was already present in the Old Testament. It got rewritten or reinterpreted in the post-second temple period by rabbinical theology in order to avoid the messianic implications that were brought out by Jesus and the Christians. But the second thing it points out is that it's important for understanding the role of God in salvation, the role of God in our spiritual life, and the role of God in ultimately bringing to fruition His plans and purposes for the human race and for Israel. So it gives us that global view uh, of history and God's plan for mankind that can only be completed and understood by understanding who God is and what He has done. Let's close in prayer. Father, thank you for this time we've had this evening to think about these things and reflect upon how you are revealed in the Old Testament, that these doctrines of the New Testament related to the Trinity and the deity of Christ and the deity of the Holy Spirit are not new, but were already there in the Old Testament, clearly demonstrated. And as we go back and we start to put pieces together and compare Scripture with Scripture, it reveals this remarkable uh, tapestry related to your essence and your attributes and your work uh, as our creator, both in terms of creation and in terms of uh, recreation, in terms of regeneration in each individual's life. And, Father, we pray that you would uh, help us to comprehend these things, that we might just have a greater understanding of who you are and a greater capacity for uh, relating to you in our spiritual life. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.